Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. We'll be looking over the next couple months at the passages, most or all of the passages with Elijah and Elisha, time permitting, before I am deployed. I chose this for a couple of reasons. One is pragmatic. It was a small enough section that I thought I could preach most or all of it before my time came to an end. But I also still have the goal someday preaching uh, through at least serious parts, segments of Revelation. And believe it or not, Elijah and Elisha show up, or Elijah shows up in Revelation and in the New Testament as well. And so it is in a bit like Daniel, another stepping stone towards that final book of Scripture. Well, I want to begin by asking how should we as Christians react to compromise within the church? Compromise, whether theological or the, the, theology or, or moral. Um, this is not an academic question for those who know the history of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, almost a hundred years ago, Really, the 1920s, which was 100 years ago, was a decade that fundamentally shaped our denomination. In the early 1920s, uh, the Presbyterians of their northern congregation, at that point, the Presbyterian church was split north and south. It had been divided by the Civil War. It, it experienced an increasing amount of professors and pastors with a new teaching that gained influence. It was called generally liberalism or progressivism. Right? And this, this combined enlightenment thinking with Darwinism as evolution, with biblical criticism that, uh, which, which challenged the authority and veracity of scriptures, sparked a, a wave of progressive Presbyterians. They saw God's word still as, as special in some way and to be treated as such, but, but not to be taken uh, literally or, or to be followed as, as direct commands, but more symbolically, allegorically, as, as, as a way to understand life. And, and, and so the goals changed. Salvation was now not so much about providing deliverance from a, a righteous and holy God for eternal life, but um, how Christ could provide hope to societies who are now experiencing new challenges in, in a world where the population was exploding. They claimed to be Christians, and yet their beliefs, if you examine them, didn't sound very Christian at least according to traditional Christianity. And the Presbyterian in New York was especially taken with this thought. And they allowed a very popular Baptist preacher, Harry Emerson Fosdick, to preach in First Press in New York City. He preached a very uh, well-known sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? In 1923, that Presbytery ordained two ministers who could not affirm or would not affirm the virgin birth of Christ. I do not believe Scripture teaches these things. And so conflict broke out in the General Assembly as the Northern Presbyterian Church met together and 1,200 ministers signed something called the Auburn Act, saying that certain truths like the infallibility of Scripture and the substitutionary atonement of Christ and the resurrection, the virgin birth, were just simply theories. And they weren't verified truth that the church could enforce on individual ministers. In the 1923 to 25, the conservative and moderate ministers who, who would affirm traditional Christianity had the votes to condemn the serious error, but they didn't. Now, I'm making this very simple. It was actually quite complex. But what, a, what the bottom line was the moderates refused to press the issue. They did a very Presbyterian thing. 
They erected a committee to review it for a couple years, filled with other like-minded moderates who came back and found that eh, pretty much the progressive beliefs are not, not they're pretty much in order. We don't agree with them completely, but it's not worth getting upset about. Uh, Daryl Hart writes in Fighting the Good Fight, he says, the moderates were by no means liberal. Rather, they believed that effective outreach and church unity were more important than theological precision or uniformity. From their perspective, there may have been a few liberals in the church, people who did not dot every I and cross every T of the confession. But standing against them was not worth destroying the unity of the denomination. The committee stalled the action and several years later, conservative resistance crumbled. And by 1929, even Princeton, which was formed in 1812, were brought there to, to represent and, and, and spread reformed Calvinist Presbyterian polity and theology, was reorganized and the conservative board members were removed and more moderate and liberal uh, members were brought in. And, and as um, Jake Gresham Machen, the founder of our uh, denomination said, well, that is the end of Princeton as we know it. Well, how do you react? How do you respond to compromise? We're going to preach through Elijah and Elisha Chronicles in the evening. And what we're going to see, the theme of this segment is that you confront compromise with covenant faithfulness. And, and we'll, we'll tease that out and, and, and explain that, explore that in detail. But, but Elijah and Elisha come and they confront the compromises of godless kings with the promises of God's covenant faithfulness. And these passages will show us how to live as a faithful minority when it seems that everyone else has forsaken the true God. I'd like us to begin by reading, starting in chapter 16, we're just going to read verses 29 into the first verse of chapter 17. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hile of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. And set up its gates the cost of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This is God's word. If you have the dubious delight, depending on who you talk to, of studying biblical Hebrew. It's either ecstasy or uh, torment, depending on how your mind works. You will find this delightful enigma, especially if you can come to appreciate it. On the one hand, the text 
flows and is full of expression. On the other hand, it's very compact and terse and moves along very quickly, which means that there are no unimportant details. There is no Charles Dickens paid by the word describing every little facet of the room. It sticks to what really matters. If it's not part of the story, it's not there. If it's there, it's there for a reason. Which brings you to a big question when reading through the book of Kings. Why Elijah? Why Elijah? This first and second Kings, which I'm just going to call Kings because they're, they're, they're really one work, uh, covers 400 years. And you get, you get chapters and chapters just glossing over kings. Sometimes a decade or two will get a paragraph, and that's it. And by the time you get to 1 Kings 17, you find yourself blazing through these fizzled dynasties. And then seemingly, out of nowhere, Elijah comes onto the scene, and you get eight chapters of his life. There is something about his ministry that is important, and the author of the Kings is saying, slow down here. This period is... Elijah's ministry really forms a high point in what we would call redemptive history. God breaking in and and acting in in the lives of Israel to bring the Messiah. This period of Elijah and Elisha is is known for its its miracles, for its signs. Elijah is referenced in the prophet Malachi much later as as prophet Malachi is calling God's people back to him. Um, It sets an expectation that God will come and act As Elijah announces the way, Jesus says, John the Baptist is a type of Elijah that prepared the way for me. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus talked with Moses and Elijah. In Revelation 11, there are two witnesses, and they draw at least some comparisons to, can you take a guess? Moses and Elijah. You can make an argument that after Moses, Elijah is the most important prophecy in the Old Testament. So why Elijah? What was it that the Lord, why was it that the Lord brought Elijah with all of his signs and wonders and his disciple Elisha to this period of time? That's the question I asked as I decided, oh, I want to preach on this. And, and just you're reading through and all of a sudden, here you go. Here are these stories. Well, there might be a couple of reasons, but the, the first the, and the largest one is because Ahab, the king, forsook the covenant with Yahweh. And instead, worshipped Baal. And not only that, but he married a woman who was determined to stamp out all true worship of Yahweh and make Baal the official religion of Israel. And so begins one of the greatest and most fearless confrontations in Scripture, where you see Elijah fight compromise with covenant faithfulness time and time again. Now next week, we're going to go into the details of chapter 17 and Elijah's pronouncement. This week, what we're going to do is I, I want us to actually stop and say, how did, how did Israel get here? What was it that caused Israel to get to this place? Because this did not happen overnight. This was instead a result of a slow, steady compromise. And so what I want us to do is, is look at a little history review and see how the leaders of Israel slowly but surely gave their hearts to other gods that set the scene for Ahab's final apostasy. So I'd like you to flip back. We're going to go um, just dip in a few places earlier in Kings. I'm start First Kings 6, where you see Solomon, David's son, who starts so well. But you see that Solomon already, in the beginning of his leadership, his rule, has hints of a divided heart. His heart is divided. If you look 
at the last bit in in chapter 6, verse 37, it summarizes Solomon's work on the temple as he was obeying his father. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. So far, so good. Faithful king. Flip over to the next verse. 7 verse 1. Solomon was building his own house 13 years. And he finished his entire house. I remember the first time I was reading that kind of slowly. I thought, hmm, 7 years? 13 years. And it wasn't just me. There's other commentators that are saying that the author of Kings here is making a subtle comparison to how Solomon is concerned with God's priorities and his own glory. It's not full-blown here. It's not outright disobedience, but a warning that he loved other things more than God. Well, there's some more good things about Solomon in dedicating the temple, but as you move over to chapters 10 and 11, we're, we're not going to read them. But it talks about Solomon walking away from the Lord. I don't know if you've, had, if you've heard Walk Through the Bible. When I was a kid, I went through a walk through the Bible that, that summarizes the scope of Scripture. And it just said Solomon fell away from the Lord for three reasons. Three W's. Wealth, wives, and winnies. Right? There was, there was his, his wealth, which his economic empire attained. The, the, the military might, which the Lord forbade. Chariots that he also sold. He became an arms dealer. And then the wives. Which chapter 11 says he had a thousand wives if you count the 300 concubines, right? Now, the problem was that he allowed his wives to worship their own gods. And here you see the, the beginning of the divided heart. Now, Solomon didn't worship them, right? He wasn't worshiping them. He worshiped Yahweh, but he didn't oppose them either. And in fact, like Adam, he let the snake into the garden without kicking it out. Let it stay there. Finally, although he didn't worship them, it was Solomon with his divided heart that introduced foreign gods into Israel, even if it's just a tiny little bit, just his wives, just one hill on the east side of Jerusalem. And so the Lord raises up adversaries to oppose Solomon, which we'll get to in a bit. But of course, there was his son Rehoboam. Um, That would be a good time to, to key the map, Steve. And Rehoboam had all of Solomon's stubbornness, but none of his wisdom. And he saw his dad's, his father's pride. And of course, you know, the, the nation asked for relief and he gives that famous statement, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And with that, we have not just the divided heart of Solomon, but now a divided kingdom. And, and what you see is the, the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and in the southern kingdom, which is Judah. And it's important to note that all of the Elijah and Elisha story takes place in the northern part of Israel with those ten tribes. So Judah and Benjamin are in the south. And so we'll just keep that up there for a little bit, Steve, because we're going to talk a little bit about the next king of Israel. Not a, not a descendant of Solomon, but this is one of the one of the opponents that the Lord raised up was Jeroboam. And Jeroboam now begins what is the first significant compromise widespread in the worship of the Lord. We're going to keep the map up because we're going to look at a couple cities, but turn with me to chapter 12, verse 25. 
after Jeroboam establishes his kingdom, this is, this is what it says. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. So Jeroboam has a legitimate problem, politically speaking. He realizes that he has to be, if he's going to be faithful, a religious exporter. You can see, you might go see Jerusalem near the top of the border, um, right, right below Jericho in Judah. And if, if God's people are to be faithful in Israel, they would need to make the trek down to Jerusalem, which you can see soon enough that would, inf- uh, that would begin to have influence and, and might turn out that it might reunify the kingdom, unless God would be faithful to his promise to Jeroboam. But Jeroboam takes the easy way out, and he now makes the first modifications. He, he puts gods, and they do worship in the sense of Israel worshiping the calves, right? Um, but where does he put them? You notice you, he puts them in, in Bethel, which is in the southern part of the northern kingdom, and in Dan, which is in the northern part. Two very uh, geographically convenient places to set up worship for the people of God. Uh, it goes on to say how he continues to make more not modifications. He appoints priests that are not Levites. He sets a feast of his own time and choosing. And there are other gods. Now, in Jeroboam's defense, he's not bringing in explicitly other gods from out of the side of the nations. They might even say, you know, it, I'm still worshiping Yahweh. But, but you can see the cracks of serious compromise. And after this, because of this, kings come in a rapid succession. Can we do the next slide, Steve? So what you see here is, you see Jeroboam, and I want you to notice the years. So Jeroboam reigns for 22 years. After that comes his son Nadab. Nadab reigns for two years. Then he is assassinated by Basha, who reigns for 24 years. Basha's son Elah reigns for two years. And then Zimri, Zimri, Zimri reigns for seven days before there is another uh, coup and there's a struggle. And Omri, who is Ahab's father, finally um, comes to power. Now, Omri is a fascinating case. He is a king who was wildly successful for a northern king. We have a decent amount of historical evidence for Omri at this time. Um, can you go back to the map, Steve? So Omri relocated his palace, his capital, to a place of greater and economic and military stability. So he went from Shechem just up a little bit to Samaria, which was just better as far as trade routes and uh, military defense goes. He subdued the Moabites again in the south, and the Moabites paid him tribute. There is actually a, an inscription stone that talks about Moabites being uh, subdued by Omri. 
And Omri made a treaty with the Phoenicians in Tyre and Sidon. And this had great economic implications. It meant that Israel's goods could be traded throughout the Mediterranean on the ships of the, the Phoenicians. So everyone was doing well. Business was booming. Um, so uh, this is a great guy, right? Who wouldn't want to have him as king? What's God's assessment of Omri? Chapter 16, verse 25. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Full stop. That's good for the slide, Steve. Thanks. Omri returned Israel to a great time, a time of political stability and prosperity. But rather than turning the people back to God, he cemented the compromise. In fact, he prepared the nation for the outright apostasy by establishing an alliance with the Phoenicians. His, his trade alliance with Tyre made it possible to, for Ahab to marry Jezebel. And it's, most, it's likely that dear old, dad, dear old dad probably had a hand in the marriage. These were politically advantageous things. And so Omri leads to Ahab, who completely forsakes God, who champions Baal, who does away with even pretending to worship Yahweh. Listen to what, what the author says about Ahab in verse 33. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now we'll talk about Ahab and what this means in much more detail next week. But what I want you to see right now is that it was only 62 years from Solomon's death to the rise of a young king who decided to completely forsake the God of his fathers, the God of Israel. I don't know how old Elijah was, but it's likely that Elijah, it's possible that Elijah was born in the later years of Solomon's reign. Certainly that his parents or grandparents had been alive in David's reign. And it was that fast that Israel walked away from the Lord. And it didn't happen overnight, but it was a steady stream of slow compromises. That's why we need to fight compromise with covenant faithfulness. Now, in the future, we'll talk about the ways that that works outward. Because clearly, covenantal Israel is different from secular America, right? Uh, Elijah slaughters the prophets of Baal. We don't want to go that route for, for many reasons. That was appropriate then, not appropriate now. We'll be talking about those things. What it looks to be a prophetic people, what it looks to contend for the faith. But tonight and next week, I want us to start with our own hearts. And we'll, we'll just probably look a little bit outward because you can't separate the two. But we need to start with our own hearts and realize that apostasy rarely starts with the blink, happens with the blink of an eye. Rarely do you wake up one day and just say, I, you know, I just don't feel like following Jesus anymore. It's not how it works. It's often that steady, slow drip of compromise that erodes the foundation of your faith in your heart. So we need to fight against compromise. And there's two things we need to fight against. You see, as we look at these kings, First, fight against compromised theology. Jeroboam continued to worship Yahweh, but you see, in his compromise, he started making some compromises. 
right? Um, you know, just, just to keep things relevant. Really, it was to avoid trusting God's promise that if he allowed his people to go to Jerusalem, he would bless him and his descendants. And so he compromised for convenience. Now, it was a pretty big convenience. What he saw was political preservation. But he innovated worship and theology to fit his means and his goals. Well, where are we? The American church, as it's a very big and global term, but the American church in general is struggling for identity and relevance. Mainline denominations, members' numbers are an absolute freefall. They are hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging members and churches. On the OPC, we're, we're actually about holding even. Um, you know, we pray for growth, but it's usually one, 1% growth or so like that. Um, though I would, I'd wager our, probably our age is slowly rising, I would think. Well, what happens as you become smaller and smaller, you can feel the temptation to make small compromises to attract people to church. Just, just to kind of be relevant, to be heard. How can you do that? You know, you can cave to the pressures of society. You know how popular church discipline is? I mean, you know, if you, if you really want to grow a big church, you know, let, let's, let's kind of advertise that we discipline our members here. Even in a loving way, right? It's, it is easy for elders to pass on church discipline, not only because of people coming in, but also because it's, it's a surefire, not a surefire way, but it's a way that can cause serious consternation in the church. You can be afraid of the fallout. We can, as leaders and as people, not deal with sins because it's just easier to leave them alone. More people will come. You know, it's pretty clear in hindsight that the Northern Presbyterian Church in America should have removed the New York Presbytery and the 1,200 ministers from the denomination. That would not have been easy. It would have been very hard, both from a constitutional standpoint, because we Presbyterians have quite involved constitutions, and also just from an emotional standpoint. They would have been laughed out of the intellectual circles of the country as, as closed-minded, as regressive. That's what they should have done. So we, we want unity because it's not worth wrecking the denomination. Well, inaction did wreck the denomination, didn't it? And so in the OPC, we take this very seriously. And you don't get these emails, but as a pastor, I will get once or twice a year an email from the stated clerk of the General Assembly saying this elder or this pastor is under discipline, is go, is, is being, has charges laid against him because his teaching seriously contradicts or significantly contradicts the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, we don't enjoy doing that. But it's something that our church does and is committed to. Because we've seen the destructiveness of going down that path of compromising in our theology. What are there other ways that you, you can compromise to, you know, for your convenience? Well, you know, we can, we can just decide to not talk or preach about uncomfortable or unpopular doctrines. We could talk about just how amazing you are and how much God wants you to have a, a wonderful life and, and how, much love he, how much he loves you. And, but we're not going to mention about how Jesus demands absolute surrender and that a road to fulfilled life means taking up your cross and following him. I had two great chaplains my last tour. Uh, we differed in a lot of places. They would have been fundamentalist, Baptist, dispensationalist, and they taught those things. But they, they loved scripture and they loved Jesus, and it was obvious. And I was, in that context, I, I delighted to sit under their preaching. And, and then they moved on, it says they happened, and another chaplain came in. 
And there was just something, and I, you know, just something my spidey sense was just a little off. And it wasn't so much that he, what he said, but what he didn't say. I mean, he wasn't very clear on the gospel, but he just never talked about hell or wrath ever as I listened to him in Bible studies and in sermons. And, and being the kind of like, uh, you know, mid-seminary and a little bit upstart that I was, I asked him, you know, sir, you know, why don't you talk about hell? It's kind of important, sir, you know? And he said, I, you know, I can believe you can minister to people better by talking to them about God's love than his judgment. Now, I don't know where he is with the Lord. Um, I just don't know. He, I didn't, I didn't you know, administer a theology exam. But there was something concerning about that. And it will get harder and harder for us simply to take a stand on preaching the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. I'm starting to realize this as a chaplain, as I'm preparing my sermons, and I'm thinking, wow, I'm preaching about the kingship of Jesus, the exclusivity of Christ, um, our sin before him, about marriage and divorce. Just mentioning these offhand, I'm really, if I mention these things, there's people who are going to get upset if I don't kind of cover this. And, and it's going to be more and more this way as... Our culture diverges from biblical Christianity that just simply taking stands, even gracious ones, can make you very unpopular, even if you're just minding your own business. It's going to hurt to be uncompromising. I don't know if you've heard of Rico Tice. He's, a, he's a, an evangelist in Britain. He's a part of the Christianity Explored movies. And uh, he wrote a, a helpful book called Honest Evangelism, saying evangelism hurts. And he was on, um, he was on a, a, a YouTube discussion, live chat, and he was talking about how, with pain in his face, how there are some Christians or some people in his block that have said, I don't want to talk to you anymore because what you believe is offensive. He's a very kind man. We need, I know I'm preaching to the choir in some sense here when we talk about theological compromise coming from where we are. But I want you to count the cost. May God help us to stand firm and avoid compromises that undermine his word and his gospel. We need to fight that compromise. But there's another one that will get us. Maybe more that would be behind the back door. And that's beware spiritual complacency which breeds moral compromise. I think the biggest tragedy in this history crash course is not the wicked Ahab who was the worst king ever as sad as it was. But the indifferent Solomon. He really is an illustration of this morning's sermon. Not being fervent in zeal, being slothful. Solomon grew up and lived under his, his dad, King David. He saw all of him. He saw his passionate heart for God. He also saw all of his flaws and his failings. He saw his repentance. He saw it all. He saw a man after God's own heart, lived large, Highs and lows, and he started so well. He was young and hungry for God and humble. He did his duty. He built the temple. He dedicated it, and he meant it when he prayed. But as God blessed him with the golden age of Israel, his heart turned. He started caring more for his building projects, his economic clout. He started to push the boundaries, dabbling in chariots and selling them, and he allowed. And then he felt entitled to the political alliances and pleasures and the status of a thousand wives. And he allowed them to worship their gods. And bit by bit, these tiny moral compromises turned his heart cold to God. And what can those small compromises be for us? 
It, it goes from seeking God's word to becoming dry, so you eventually stop, to filling it with space with other things, the chatter and the voices of the day. And before you know it, your love for God is cold. It's fantasies about someone else's husband, or it's that second or third look at someone who's not yours, and one day you don't decide you don't love your spouse anymore. It's being a little loose with the numbers, not reporting all of your taxable income. We're at the uh, end of the week claiming an extra hour or two. At the end of your life, you find yourself consumed by a love for money. Or, or you've wronged someone and, and you refuse to ask for forgiveness. And your heart grows hard. It's your pet sin. It's, it's, it's your cherished go-to comfort when life hurts or when you want to escape. It's, it's dangling there just a little bit, won't hurt. And you get trapped. I plead with you, don't let these little comfortable compromises sit comfortably in your heart. Recognize them for what they are. Confess them to the Lord, maybe someone else. And do battle by God's grace to root them out. And Paul, in Romans 6, talking about the new life, says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Solomon's case, they started small. But in the end, they moved his heart. And this is what I want us to see when we are so committed to God's truth. And that's a wonderful blessing of our church. But we also must see the back door that small moral compromises can have theological consequences. Right? If you are living in a way, even small, that's going against what you believe, you may very well be scooping out the foundation and not even knowing it. And when Rehoboam, Solomon's son, saw his father's pride of his later years and his honor was more important than the Lord's, well, he acted the same way. And it split the kingdom and set the chain of events that led to Ahab's final apostasy. I'll say older Christians, parents, your, your kids or the younger generation of Christians are looking at you. And they're looking at me. They will pick up what is most important in our lives. What they need to see is not a perfect person or a perfect parent, but more like David, a flawed person who sees their failure, but also sees the mercy of the Lord and is quick to confess it and to repent and to point out in their own lives how God's grace makes the difference. We're going to see as we go through this series, fight compromise with covenant faithfulness. But people of God, start with yourselves. Your first line of defense is not your own. That's the encouragement. It's not your covenant faithfulness. It's that of Jesus Christ. The son of David who lived a perfect life is never wavering, never compromised. And he bared the curse of our apostasy on the cross. And as you fight your compromise, you go to your Lord, as you confess your own sins and you confront your own compromises and you receive his grace, that's when God is going to make you the instrument that can go out and be prophetic in a positive way, an instrument to declare his will to the world around you. If you start by fighting your own compromise and going to the Lord for grace, 
then you will be compassionate and without self-righteousness and without anger at those people out there. Because you know you're a sinner yourself. You've experienced firsthand God's grace and you can invite them. Turn. But you can also be rock solid. You will be committed to the truth of the gospel. And when someone opposes you, you can say, look, I understand you don't like this. I understand this makes you mad. Do you know why that is? Can I tell you? It's because you want to be your own king. You want to be the center. But I can tell you this from everything I know, that Jesus is king. And the only hope that you can have in this life is when he is on the throne. There's no hope without him. Let us pray.